So in John 2 today, as we continue to walk through Jesus' first year of ministry, we're going to be entering a temple scene where Jesus is bringing reformation. He shows up at the temple and begins to show them a better way to come before the Lord. And so this morning, as we go through John 2, we're going to see that the ministry of Jesus is always a ministry of reformation. That's the big idea for us this morning. The big idea is that the ministry of Jesus is always reformation. And so for the outline, we're going to be covering kind of three portions of the text. First, we're going to see how Jesus brings reformation when he turns a desire for profit, power, and ease into an act of purification and praise. Secondly, we'll see Jesus turn a demand for proof into a promise of redemption. And thirdly, we're going to see Jesus turn a passing infatuation at Passover into pursuit for relationship. And so with Jesus's reforming way in mind, let's pray uh, and begin to walk through the text with one another. And so God, uh, we thank you that we can be gathered here. We thank you that there are uh, students up in Iowa who are just praising you right now, learning of the things of you. And God, uh, I pray that you would honestly be doing uh, a deep work in them. And God, I pray that as we uh, look at this passage this morning, where there's this scene that, that you played out, God, so many years ago, God, I pray that that scene would still have an effect on us today and that we'd learn something from it. So God, I pray that you'd use this time in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll go ahead and turn to John 2 if you guys aren't there already. Uh, and as you're doing that, uh, I'll share a little bit about just the kind of the context of Jesus always bringing reformation. And so up on the screen, there's going to be a passage from Luke 2. And the, the first time that Jesus is in the temple, actually, isn't this scene that we just read from John. It's when he was an infant, eight days old coming before the Lord, as was Jewish custom, for him to be circumcised, representing that he was part of the people of God. And so Jesus shows up as an infant, and we're thinking, how on earth could there be reformation there? As Jesus comes to the temple as an infant, he is reforming an era of silence to become an era of redemption. And we can see that in the words of the prophet Simeon. And Simeon says in that text, Lord, now you are letting your servant, he's speaking of himself, Depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that is Jesus, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Jesus as an infant showing up in the temple, marking a transition of a time of silence to become a time of redemption. Jesus as a young boy later in Luke 2, this will be on the screen as well. We have Jesus at the temple, 12 years old. Uh, basically what happened, he, he was going to Passover with his family. That was typical. Every year they would do that. Jesus shows up and they are interacting with people. Jesus' parents take off though and they're, next thing they know, they're like, oh wait, where's Jesus? Like we forgot our boy. And where do they find him? Back in the temple, what is he doing? He's bringing reformation. He's speaking words that bring astonishment and wonder and awe to the temple teachers. A 12-year-old guiding the scribes and the men that were gathered there. And in the words that we read in Luke, it says, And all who heard him, that is Jesus, at 12 years old, were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, that's amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Meaning, why have you left us? And he said to them, his parents, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke 
to them. Jesus bringing reformation in the temple, not only as an infant, not only as a 12-year-old, but it continues. Last week, Matt talked about the, the wedding at Cana. Jesus brings reformation in that scene as well. There was the, the dirty dishwater that Jesus somehow turns into this miraculous wine that tasted better than any wine anyone had had before. And what was that? But symbolizing the reformation that Jesus brings in people's lives through his work on the cross, through the death, and through the resurrection. And so Jesus has always been reforming, will continue to be reforming. And so this morning, as we uh, look at the text together, uh, let's read through verses 13 to 17 with one another and see how Jesus turns a desire for profit, power, and ease into an act of purification and praise. So verse 13, it says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple, with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. First thing to, to notice there is that he's in Jerusalem. He's just traveled from Capernaum. He's been with his disciples. He's been with his mother. He's been with his brothers. He shows up in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, typically at this point uh, in time, in history, would have been like 50,000 to 100,000 people. So a bit smaller than Colombia, but a really big city uh, for Israel at that time. And so typically there was 50 to 100,000 people there during Passover week, though. It, it grew to almost a half million people. People from all around the region, all around the world who were Jews would gather with one another to celebrate the Passover, which the Passover was a week-long celebration to, to signal and, and help people remember God rescued us out of slavery and brought us into a redeemed state, into this place, the land of promise, the land of Canaan. And so every year, they would gather with one another in this place. And so uh, if you can just picture in your mind's eye, Jesus is showing up at a very chaotic city. Like think Columbia, if for some reason Faroe Field hosted the Super Bowl. Whole bunch of people here, whole bunch of food, a lot of noise, a lot of chatter. The city can't really house as many people as it needs to at that point. It's a busy place. Jesus shows up in Jerusalem, makes his way through the city, comes to the temple. And up on the screen, there's a picture of the temple. And so Jesus, uh, go to the next one, actually. Um, Jesus shows up here. And so the, the left side of the screen represents the south side of the temple. And so Jesus walks in there, and that court here on the, the left there is the court of the Gentiles. Jesus shows up in that setting. Typically, that setting was to be used so that people who were non-Jews could celebrate and understand the things of God. They weren't allowed into the court of women. They weren't allowed into the court of Jewish men. And so they were in this place of the Gentile courtyard. And Jesus shows up, and, and typically what that place is reserved for is for worship. So that people who are not Jewish could understand the things of God and what is taking place when Jesus shows up. Verse 14. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Jesus shows up and he sees uh, a zoo. He sees a cattle show. People are gathered, they're, they're there to be worshiping, 
in the house of the Lord, like we were singing about this morning, they were to be doing that. And Jesus shows up in that scene and he walks into a place that they had turned into a cattle market. And so the the oxen were being sold, the sheep were being sold, the pigeons were being sold. And Jesus comes into that place, and what does he do? He begins to have his own sort of worship service. In his own sort of way, coming before the Lord, Jesus shows up with a whip in hand to drive out those animals and to drive out the people who were selling those animals because he wanted to protect the glory of his Father. He wanted to protect the house of the Lord. And so Jesus begins to drive people out with passion in his heart. He's dumping the, the coins that are on the table. He's flipping the tables, representing his passion for his father's house. Not his distaste for humanity, but passion for his father's house. In love, he's protecting what the place was to be. And so Jesus turns this place that had become a place of profit and power and ease into a place of purification and praise. With a whip in hand and with his word, he's purging the temple so that the people could see what the, even the court of the Gentiles was to be a place where people could be worshiping. And so what did Jesus do? Not in rage, but in his plan, he came to protect the glory of his father and to redirect the people. And so he challenges the profit and power of Jewish leaders. What was taking place here was people would need to make sacrifices before the Lord, representing their thankfulness that God had taken them out of slavery so many years ago. And so they were to gather and make those sacrifices before the Lord. But many people did not want to travel with those animals that they were going to be sacrificing. They didn't want to have to find food, have to find water. You know, it's pretty arid, that part of the world. And so they wanted to just be able to show up. And it's like, well, I'm not going to bring the little calf I've been raising. I'm going to show up at the temple of the Lord. And I'm just going to buy something there because they've been doing that for years. And rather than having a sacrifice that costs them something more than money, they come to the temple, they pay to have a sacrifice done by the cattle that's there conveniently. And the commoners are turning the place of worship into a place of ease where it's like, oh, this will be the easiest way to sacrifice. And for the Jewish leaders, what they were doing, they were taking advantage of that. They get to set the price when, when it comes to the, the currencies that people are using, they, they might not have the currency of the land because they've traveled from afar. And so they got these money changers set up where they're like, oh, yeah, like I'll exchange coin. Might not be a good rate, but I can exchange it for you. You got to get what you got to get. And sorry, like this is the money we use. So let's make some exchange. They took advantage of that. And the temple tax that would have been taken for the Jewish people they were applying that to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, so that they could take advantage of the foreigners. And Jesus comes into this place and sets the tone as, hey, this is a place of worship, not a place for profit, for power, for ease. And so Jesus purges sin from the temple courts to become a place of praise. And so the ministry of Jesus is always a ministry of reformation. Everywhere he walks, all throughout the Gospels, this is what he's doing. He's bringing reformation with every step that he takes, taking consumer endeavors and calling those consumer endeavors to become calls of praise rather than satisfying people's wants. And so why do we come to church? Why do we gather? Why do we go to God? When we come before the Lord, do we have some of these ill motives like they had here? 
When they were, they were showing up at the house of the Lord at that time, they, they were looking for power. They, they were looking for ease. Why are you coming before the Lord? Is it because you want to get guilt off your chest? And so it's like, I just need to go to church so I can confess something. Not because I want to honor God, not because I want to glorify him, but I just want to get this off my chest. And we just bring our burden before him. But maybe not because we love him. What brings you to the house of the Lord? What brings you before the Lord in prayer? Why do you go to his word? Is it to be religious? Is it to have influence? Or is it to worship God? Is it to meet? with your maker. And I know for me, my tendency at times in ministry is to, like, I love watching people grow. Like, I don't know, ever since I was younger, just like the idea of old things becoming new things, repurposing carpentry stuff, like that's a passion of mine. And so when it comes to discipleship, like sometimes I have ill motives. Like I see sin in somebody else that I don't like, that I find annoying. And I'm just like, oh Lord, give me, give me the right words to say so this person doesn't live like this anymore. And then I find myself in a spot where my worship really isn't centered on God, but it's just like, I wanna have influence in other people's life. I have this need to be needed. And rather than discipleship being out of a heart of love and care for other people, sometimes it's just like, hey, that thing in that person bothers me and maybe the Lord can use me to disciple that out of them. Like that's all honesty. Like we have ill motives all throughout us. And so what is the thing that brings you to the house of the Lord? Why do you find yourself seeking after God? Is it for a consumerist thing or is it to meet with the Lord and worship him? And so Jesus turns this demand, not this demand, Jesus turns uh, this time where they are looking for profit and power and ease. Jesus takes that and says, I'm going to reform that. And we're going to make this a house of praise. As the next thing that we see in the text in verses 18 to 22, Jesus is going to do a promise of redemption. Verse 18, it says, so the Jews said to him, that's Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Verse 18 the Jews say to Jesus, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What they're really saying there, what they're really asking Jesus is who on earth gives you permission to do this? Like, why do you have the power? Why do you have the authority to do this? What sign are you gonna show us to prove that you have such an authority to show up in a gathering and completely redirect what the focus is on? Who are you, Jesus, for doing this? And they make a demand for proof on Jesus. And I think it's interesting that they do that because it shows their motive. They weren't about protecting the house of the Lord. They weren't about protecting the glory to be to God. They were people who were wanting to keep their position, keep their church service running the same way it always had been. And they didn't want Jesus to come in and change what the focus had been. And so in effect, what Jesus had done in the temple was rewrite the rule book of worship. He's saying, no more is the Gentile courtyard to be a place where you guys just show up and sell cattle to make money or because you want your sacrifice to be easy. He's saying, no, as you come here, that's a place that's reserved for Gentiles to learn about the God of all. 
And they were so off track, they did not get it. And they corner Jesus and say, they make this demand, who are you to bring this word here in the temple? What sign do you have to show us to do such a thing as this? And so Jesus brings reformation before them by turning their demand for proof into this hint at a promise of redemption. In verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus lays before them this promise of, hey, like this temple is actually my body that I'm speaking of, you don't understand that. You're thinking of Herod's temple that was built like 46 years ago. That's kind of your pride and joy when people come to Jerusalem. You get to show off your building, your stadium. Oh, wow. He's saying, no, don't worry about that temple being destroyed, even though it later would be in like 70 AD. Jesus is saying, yeah, destroy this temple, my body, and in three days it's gonna raise again. That's gonna be the sign that you guys someday are hopefully gonna understand. And so he brings that truth before him, kind of deflects the question as if he didn't have enough authority already to do what he did in that temple scene. And by way of analogy, Jesus shows his cards and says this body will later be destroyed and this body will later rise again. Jesus gets put on trial right there, you know. Hey, who gives you the proof to do this? He gets put on trial and he turns that into a promise. And don't we do the same thing as those at the temple. Rather than showing up before the Lord to worship, we find ourselves making demands before God. We put God on trial. And as we show up, as we gather with one another, as we go to him in prayer, so many times we're just in a place where we're not worshiping him, but we're making a demand from the Lord. We put God on trial instead of worshiping. We demand God to give us what we want. We demand God to give us that thing when we want it. We demand understanding. Why, God, did you allow this? Why, God, did you do this? We, like the Jewish majority at that time, we quit worshiping and build walls between us and the Lord and just show up before him with ill motives. We don't worship, we make demands. And so what unspoken demands do you have before the Lord that hinder your worship? What are the things that, that get in the way of you serving and seeking the Lord out of an honest heart? Jesus calls us to stop building walls and he invites us to be reformed so we can notice the redemption that's found in him so that we can worship him. And so the final way that we see Jesus bringing reformation in this passage is in 23 to 25, Jesus will turn a passing infatuation into a pursuit of relationship. Verse 23, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. What did Jesus see in humanity? From, from the time that he had been on earth to this moment that he's in the temple, what had Jesus seen in humanity? A couple of weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, Matt shared about Nathaniel. Nathaniel was a guy who was skeptical. Jesus had seen skepticism in humanity. 
Nathanael had said, what good comes out of Nazareth? He said that to his brother because he didn't believe that Jesus could be the Messiah because why on earth would the sent one be from a small town that doesn't really matter? So Jesus had seen skepticism in the very people he would call to be his disciples. Jesus had seen neediness in his mother. At the wedding at Cana, she's in this place where, where she's asking Jesus, like, hey, we just ran out of wine. I'm helping oversee this wedding, and Lord, we need, some, we need some wine. And she, in desperation, in need, comes to Jesus. Jesus sees neediness in humanity. Jesus sees dishonor, disgrace in the temple, what's taking place here. I mean, there, just imagine if this room suddenly, like next week, you showed up and there's a whole bunch of cattle just wandering around. Like that, that would be a disgrace to the Lord because we'd be using this space that's reserved for worship for something that has nothing to do with that. And so Jesus had seen disgrace and dishonor and humanity. And as we can see in this passage here, verse 23, there's also infatuation. 23, it says, now when he, that's Jesus, was in the in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. There's miracles that were taking place at this time during the Passover feast, and people saw that, and they were amazed. But it was infatuation because those same people that are clapping their hands at Jesus' good works that are taking place there are the same people who later criticize him and crucify him. And that's why Jesus is not entrusting himself to their commitment of belief there because he knows their hearts. He knows their hearts and that they're going to walk away. But even though that's human nature, even though Jesus sees that and knows that, what is his plan even so? It's reformation. Up on the screen, there's uh, just a little bit of a graph thing that kind of explains uh, what's taking place in hum human nature. And so we're skeptical people, we're needy people, we're disgraceful people, we're negligent people, we're rebellious people, we're infatuated people. But even though that's us, what does Jesus do? He pursues relationship, and don't we need that? Like, I can think of so many times in my life where I've been following after Jesus, and I'm living in rebellion, walking in sin, knowingly. How many times have I been disgracing my relationship with the Lord because I'm wandering in a direction that I know is against what God calls me into? And how many times am I doing the work of the Lord out of bad motives, not out of worship of God, but out of, you know, let's make myself feel good. But even so, what does Jesus do? He pursues relationship, even though he sees infatuation here. He pursues relationship. And where do we see that? Chapter 3, verse 1. I know that passage is for next week, but chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Jesus begins to tell people around him the hope that's found in him. Even though he sees this brokenness, even though it has a huge impact on him, even though that brokenness takes his life, Jesus pursues relationship. And so even though there's been this infatuation that's taking place where they're like, oh, praise God, God's good. Look at the work that Jesus just did, that, that praise that later becomes criticism and crucifixion, even though Jesus knows that is coming, he still pursues his people because he's full of truth and grace. And that's what we need. So the church is meant 
to be a city on a hill to the watching world. But a lot of times as we come before the Lord, whether it's on a Sunday morning, whether it's in our quiet time, whether it's when we're filling our time with something else, so many times when we have our relationship with God, we are not, we are not living it out to be a city on a hill to the watching world. We don't have that idea of how can I be a hospital to the sick? How can I be counsel to the lost? And instead, we find our place in ill motive. And so why do you come to church this morning? Why do you go to God? Is it because you have a desire for power, for ease, for influence? Is it to repent because of guilt, but not because you desire the Lord? Do you come before God to make demands, to put him on trial and say, God, I'm going to go to church so long as you give me this. God, I'm going to follow you if, and we try to make these deals with God. What brings you to the house of the Lord today? What brings you before God in your prayer time, in your quiet time? Is it for consumer needs or is it for worship? And kind of the takeaway from from the text as I was driving in here this morning, I was like, Lord, what do we need to hear from this text? As I was studying out the passage, I was like, there's a lot of different things that I could pull from this. God, what do we need to hear from the text? I really do believe that a lot of this passage is communicating to us when we seek God, when we show up before the Lord, it's to worship, not to get what we want. We gather with one another to worship God, not to take. Not to get what we want, we come to worship. We come to worship, we don't come to get what we want from the Lord so that we can get the life that we want. We come before him with humility and say, God, I wanna worship you with hands open. I wanna give my life to you with feet moving forward in faith, knowing that my life is to be used by you, that you sacrificed your life for me. And we move forward in faith, knowing that he puts us here on earth to worship him, not to just get life the way that we want it. He's not some genie in a bottle. He's not some governmental welfare thing. He's the God of the universe who's created us to worship him. And so as you think about your seeking of the Lord, whether it's a Sunday morning, no matter when it is in your week, are you seeking him to worship him or are you seeking him to get what you want? If Jesus came to Anthem during our our little brunch after this, why would he be flipping our table? How would he be calling us to purify our heart, to be reformed and realigned? Would it be to confess selfish wants rather than pursuing our Savior? Would it be to confess us making demands rather than worshiping him? And would it be to confess that we've been maybe infatuated with the things that he does, but to confess that we haven't been invested in him? Or maybe for you this morning, you you haven't been following after the Lord. And I believe the, the invitation for you would be to come and dine with Jesus Christ. For him, like he did with Nicodemus, to seek you out, to tell you how you might find life in him. Jesus pursues us, even though we're broken, even though we're rebellious, even though we're infatuated. He pursues us, even though at times we get this whole worship thing wrong. What brings you here this morning and what is God calling you to do with your worship? Let's pray. 
God, we just thank you that uh, this unique story, uh, 2,000 years ago, we thank you that it happened, that it had influence on those people at that time. Like, what a scene that would have been, God, to show up and, and see you in flesh, flipping tables, bringing a, a moment of reformation before a temple that was really after their own selfish wants, God. As so, Lord, I just pray that as we come before you that, that we would be honest about our pursuits, that we would be honest that at times we find ourselves not seeking you for worship, but we seek you for want. God, would you just work in our hearts this morning to help us see the ways in which we are pursuing you for the wrong reason. And God, I pray that your gospel work would, would refine us and for those who maybe aren't walking with you, God, that you would invite them to dine with you so that they could be born again. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.